Hope everybody go and open your Bibles up to the book of Acts. We're going to be hitting about chapter 9 in just a few moments. We are in the midst of a series called Revolution. We are talking revolution. Those are fighting words. Those are words that say we cannot accept the status quo. We've got to do something. We've got to rise up. We've got to shake things up. That's what revolution means. Now, here's the question this morning. What do we do? Maybe we ought to go and form a Christian army and march across the world and defeat those who believe different than us. Maybe we ought to go and bomb abortion clinics because we know that babies are being killed. Maybe you should go to work, and if anybody drops a cuss word, you should correct them. Maybe we should go to military funerals and scream and yell because of what's happening in our country because of the homosexual push. Maybe that's what we should do. You go, buddy, that, 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 that doesn't sound like what we should do. But let me say to you, everything I have just mentioned is the way that some Christians have responded to this revolution. Or things that have been done to say we're going to take a stand and we're going to fight. And sometimes I think we all slip up and, and we go into to that kind of worldly fighting mode. Reminds me of Eugene Peterson. He's the man who translated the the message translation. He writes that early on in his life, he was a a follower of Jesus. But he went to this school and there was this bully named Garrison that picked on him endlessly and relentlessly. And one day, Eugene Peterson just snapped. And he 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 just went to this big bully garrison and pushed him down the ground. Then he got with his fist and he began to pummel him and hit him. And all of a sudden he called himself in the middle of it thinking, I'm a Christian, this is not the way I'm supposed to react. And he didn't know how to stop the fight. And so finally he said what he'd heard over and over, he said to garrison, accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And garrison said yes. And Eugene Peterson said he had his first convert. But is that the way we win people? Is that the way we approach things? You know, if you look closely at where we landed last Sunday in Acts chapter 7, we see the contrast of two different men who are fighting the war for God in different ways. We saw Stephen, who he's being pummeled by the rocks and he's dying. And he says, Lord, do not lay this charge against them. Forgive them. He loves the people that are murdering him back. And on the other hand, we see Saul of Tarsus. If we keep reading, though he may have been touched by what happened with Stephen, it says he began to breathe out murderous threats against the disciples. He goes to the high priest and he gets permission to go to the city of Damascus and to kill Christians. 
And you see that contrast between the ways this war could be fought. But here's what I want you to see this morning. Is this very enemy of Christianity, Saul of Tarsus, is transformed into a revolutionary. But listen to me. When he's transformed into a Christian revolutionary, he doesn't fight with the same weapons. And the temptation for us as Christians today is we can get so alarmed by what's happening in our world that we begin to fight with the same weapons that the world uses. Paul learns differently. Go to Acts chapter 9. He's on his way to Damascus to persecute these Christians. Look at verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, Why do you persecute me? Now those words are in red if you've got a red letter edition right in the middle of the book of Acts. Who are you, Lord, Saul asked. He couldn't have been more shocked than when the voice came back, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He found out two things in that moment. He found out that Jesus was alive. He had resurrected from the dead. And not only was he alive, he was present. And when the people were throwing rocks on Stephen, they weren't just throwing rocks on Stephen. They were throwing rocks on Jesus Christ. He was alive and present in the world. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. You think there's any significance that Saul is blinded for three days? Three days to match the three days that Jesus stood or lived in the darkness of the tomb? God is doing a work on Saul. And, and then if you, you read our chapter, he calls this guy named Ananias. He, he appears to Ananias in a vision. And in the vision, he says, I want you to go to a street here in Damascus. Ananias lived in Damascus. I want you to go to Straight Street to the home of a man named Judas. And I want you to preach the gospel to a man named Saul of Tarsus. Now, If you are Ananias, number one, you're not real thrilled with the name Judas. And you're certainly not thrilled with the name Saul of Tarsus. And guys, if you read the text, he comes back at God. Ananias argues with God. He said, God, do you really know what you're talking about? Have you been reading the newspapers? Do you know what's going on? Do you know what Saul is doing to Christians like me? And more than likely, Ananias was on Saul's hit list. And now God comes and says, I want you to go and I want you to teach him. It, it would be like being in the Middle East today and, and, and being in a community where, where ISIS was beheading Christians. And God appears to vision to you and says, I want you to go to the head of ISIS in this community and tell them about Jesus. Would you not argue with God? Well, Ananias does, but he doesn't get anywhere. Listen to what God says to him, verse 15. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is a chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. I will show you, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. 
Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, one of the, there's a lot of miracles in the book of Acts. One of the greatest miracles in the book of Acts is that Ananias calls Saul of Tarsus brother. Man, what a word. Here's a guy that's been killing your friends, and he embraces him with his first word, which is a family term, which is brother. And Saul responds to this. Immediately, verse 18, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. It's an amazing story. And now God begins to work on Saul of Tarsus, and he begins to change Saul's weapons. Saul, this brute that went from city to city to persecute and to force people to reject Christianity and to live for Judaism now learns about what I want to call this morning a powerful weakness. I mean, go to chapter 9 again. Look at verse 21. People are astonished that Saul is preaching. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet, Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Because this is one of the greatest proofs of the truth of Christianity, that the greatest opponent of Christianity overnight begins to be the greatest proponent of Christianity. That's an historical fact, my friend. That's amazing. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Now, did you notice two statements here to me that, that seem very contradictory? One says that Saul is growing more and more powerful. But the passage ends with the poor fella having to be stuffed into a basket and sneaking out of town hidden in a basket. I mean, you know, if, if we were writing this story, we wouldn't have said that Saul was growing more and more powerful. We would say he's growing more and more weak. He has no influence left. He's got to sneak out of town. But he's learning something. He's learning that the way of Jesus is not by brute strength. It is by loving weakness. In fact, fascinating passage. Go over to 1 Corinthians with me just for a moment. Go to 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, excuse me, chapter 11. And Paul is trying to teach a church here about the power of weakness and about how God really moves through love and forgiveness. And he uses this story we just read as the illustration. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. You see, these folks are saying, Paul, you're not very impressive. 
When you come in here, you're not a very powerful speaker. You're, you're, you're not too strong. You're, you're weak. And Paul says, that's what I've been boast about. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I'm not lying. And now here's his illustration. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of Damascus guarded in order to arrest me. And then he tells this embarrassing story. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in a wall and slipped through his hands. And then in the next chapter, he continues to explain the power of humility and weakness. He says, guys, he said, if anybody's got reason to brag, I can brag. Man, I, I was at one point in my life carried to the third heavens, whatever that means. And I've been given visions from God that hardly anybody has ever seen. And then he says, but God, to keep me humble, gave me a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was. Some kind of physical infirmity, I would guess, a thorn in the flesh. God gives me this thorn in the flesh. And I went to God three times and I said, God, please take this away. This is making me weak, not strong. And three times God said no to him. And then Paul brings his point home in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8. Three times I plead with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, In difficulties. Any of us delight in those things? Paul did because he knew the truth of the next line. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's when I am humbled and weak and putty in the hands of God that I'm really strong. And this, this man who was so brutal has been molded into this vessel. And don't, don't think that this means he's not strong. Let me, let me tell you, he's just strong in a whole new way. And as we think about leading this revolution, as we think about what's going on in our culture that upsets us, as we think about what's going on in our families, as we think about what's going on in the church, how do we change things? Paul says we don't change things with the weapons of the world. In fact, he'll write in the chapter before this chapter, 2 Corinthians 10, we don't fight with the weapons of the world. You guys, this is what messes Christianity up today, is when we begin to fight with the same weapons of the world. Paul says we don't. We fight differently, more effectively, but differently. So we will talk a moment this morning about our weak weapons. Because our weapons are different. It's the weapons of Stephen on the floor being beaten with rocks. And yet forgiving the people that are killing him. It's the love of Jesus 
that though crucified, ask for the forgiveness of those who crucify him. It's the weapons that showed up in the civil rights movement of nonviolence that people are willingly beaten for their cause. It's a different set of weapons. I went to a meeting this week I thought it was fascinating. It was about the, the abortion issue. It's probably an issue we don't talk enough about. I believe it's the murder of children. But how do we fight it? Do we scream at these ladies? Do we bomb the clinics? Do we kill the abortionists? Lots of, quote, Christians have done those things. I went to a meeting this week about a, a, a new ministry that they're seeking to start here in Montgomery and also will serve the Birmingham area, and it's called uh, Life on Wheels. And the idea is, the percentage is this, that if you can get a young lady who's pregnant and thinking about aborting her baby, to simply see an s- ultrasound of that baby, here's the statistics, crazy, 90% of them will choose to keep the baby. And so what they're raising is they're raising money to buy an RV for the city of Montgomery that will be a, a center of love that they will take in some of the poorer neighborhoods, some of the college campuses where this is most likely to happen, and even park across the street from the one abortion clinic here in Montgomery. And they're not going to scream at these girls. They're going to love on these girls. They're going to invite them in to, to have an ultrasound, to get pre-made natal care, to help them whether they want to keep the baby or they want to put the baby up for adoption. So different than what we've seen. But let me say, that weapon is so much more powerful in this battle than us just screaming. And, and, and that's what Saul becomes Paul. I mean, that's, that's, that's an interesting change of, why does he change his name? It's not a very big name change. I mean, you change your name from Saul to Paul, you just change, change one letter. Let, let me tell you, Saul, he was named after a king who ruled by brute force. You know what the word Paul means? That one letter changes it? You know what the word Paul means in Latin? It means small. He understands that God works now in a completely different way. So let's talk this morning about four of the weapons that God gives us. Four of these quote-unquote weak weapons that are the most powerful weapons on the earth. Let me give you a few. Number one is truth. Well, we just, we believe, we must believe in the power of just spoken truth. We must believe as Christians have through the centuries that ideas are more powerful than force, that the pen is mightier than the sword. Through centuries, Christians have been the best thinkers, and we believe that we hold a truth in us that can change people. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You know what that word power means there? It means dynamite. And what is this truth that we hold that would change things? It's the truth that we serve a humble God 
who appeared weak, born in a manger, lived a life like anybody here, died on a cross, and resurrected to give people life. And and Paul says, if you want to change the world, don't go dynamite them with dynamite. Dynamite them with the gospel. I mean, share this good news, this truth. Weapon number two is grace. Because listen closely to me, because we, we, we throw this word around so, so flippantly. Do you realize that, that grace is the weapon that nobody but Christian has? You study world religions. What makes Christianity so unique is that it's a religion of grace. Well, what is grace? It's unmerited favor. It's getting a gift you don't deserve. It's being treated with love and forgiveness. Now, it's, it sounds so weak. Well, we just, we just, you know, if you did us wrong, we're just going to forgive you. We're just going to love you. And yet we know how powerful it is. That's why the story we told a couple weeks ago about the the white cop that framed the African-American man and sends him to prison. And later, the white cop is convicted, and later they both get out of prison, and they meet at this Christian coffee shop, and they become friends. That's why we love that story, because it's a story of grace. That's why even the major networks, who certainly are not normally very... um, you know, supportive of who we are, who normally don't make Christians look very good, they can't help but cover a story like that because it's so beautiful, it's so powerful. That's when the the mother who goes to prison to embrace the young man who got drunk and who wrecked into her son and killed him, and she goes to prison and embraces the man who killed her son. That's why it's newsworthy, because it's so different. It's so powerful. And that's grace. And that's the power we have. And guys, as we want to fight this battle, as we want to save marriages, we've got to introduce this idea of grace. I've seen it played out over and over. The couple where one spouse has done the other so wrong, and yet out of Christian grace, the other spouse extends grace and says, you know what, I'm willing to hang in here. I know I'm hurt by what you did, but I must extend forgiveness. I'm going to give you a chance to rebuild the trust. And if you don't rebuild the trust, it may be a different story. But I'm going to extend forgiveness, and, and, and our marriage could be healed. That's why when you go in the workplace and you extend grace, it's so powerful. That's why the church is such a powerful place, because we say, you know what, you could tell us your, your worst sin. You could, you could lay out your dirty laundry before us this morning, and we would forgive you. And, and the Apostle Paul, he would say, he'd say, it's, the, it's by the grace of God, I am what I am. And he says this, and that grace was not without effect on me. What, what's this brute man who's willing to kill Christians say? My goodness, when I encountered Jesus, and he forgave me despite what I had done, that grace affected me. That 
much more powerful than going and trying to force people to follow your religion. We're tempted today in America. Okay, we're upset. America's not a Christian nation. Well, let's make sure, let's, let's, let's go out there and let's force people. That's not powerful, friends. That doesn't change hearts. But grace does. And it has an effect. C.S. Lewis said, the greatest temptation for the church is to trade grace for power. Think about that. It doesn't work. Number three is service. This is the crazy truth, is the creator of the universe came to this earth as a servant. He washed feet. And then before he left, he said, if you want to be great in my kingdom, don't put yourself on top where you tell everybody what to do. Put yourself on bottom where you serve people. That's why we honor people like Junior and Becky this morning. Because that kind of service is powerful. It's, it's selfless. And that's why I say to you guys, if we want to change this world, guys, what we've got to do is we've got to become servants. We've got to be willing to get our hands dirty in, in helping people and serving people. As a church, we've got to be made up of servants. Guys, you don't have to go past these walls to be a servant. You know the impression it makes on someone who's lost, who walks in a church, and there's somebody out on the sidewalk to say, you know, we're so glad you're here. And you walk out of your way to greet them. And they go and they drop their children off in the nursery, you know. And there are more than enough workers. They're not having to go get teenagers to come fill the spots because we can't get enough workers. We're serving. And there's great Bible class teachers. And there's great small group leaders. And there's all these people that are there. Hey, we're here for you. We're going to take care of your children. We're going to bless your life. You know the difference that makes? Because here's, here's the temptation for us as a church, and this is what's going on, is we are becoming consumers, not servants. We think it's our job to show up at church, watch what happens, and critique it, and leave. And that will destroy you, and that will destroy the people who come to this church. But what will change people is when we are busting our tails, serving in the name of Jesus. Can I ask you a question? How are you serving in this church? Are you just attending? Are you just coming? Where are you really applying yourself? Where you're really going, you know what? The gifts and energy and what God has given me, I'm not just going to apply out in the work world. I'm not just going to apply in some community group. I'm going to apply in this church. I'm going to go down to Compassion 21 and serve those children. I'm going to go down. I'm going to go back to these classrooms and serve. I'm going to be here looking out for that person who may show up here. Man, it, this is not about me and what I like. This is about who I can serve. Where, where, where are you? If you're a ministry leader, if you're a deacon, if you're a life group leader, if you're a member, I'm, I'm asking me, I'm asking you, where are you really bearing down hard? Where are you sweating a little bit? Where are you working? Where are you washing feet? That's what can change people. Now, let me, let me say this, guys. There, there's a lie that Satan's going to whisper to about 50% of my audience right now. He's going he's to whisper this to the men of this audience that, that this sounds 
weak. This sounds like feminine qualities, truth and grace and service. But here's what I want to say to men. If you want to be strong in your family, then you serve your family by speaking bold truth, by serving, by loving. You think Jesus was weak? Jesus was the strongest, most manly man who ever lived. You think Saul, who becomes Paul, was weak? I'm telling you, he was much stronger when he humbled himself in weakness and served and loved and gave grace than we went around the country trying to force people to follow what he believed. That strength. Don't let Satan tell you as a man that that's weakness. And that brings me to number four, which is love. Karl Barth, by many estimates, was the greatest Christian theologian of the last century. He was deep. He was, wrote dozens of books. In 1962, he visited America. He was at a major university in Chicago, a pretty snooty university. And there was a question and answer period. And someone asked Barth, said, Mr. Barth, you, you've studied so much and you, you've written so much and you're so deep and you know the meaning of all these things. Could you sum up for us what you believe? And here's what he said. I can sum it up with these words. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. That's deep. That's powerful. And so when Jesus preaches to us and he calls us to turn the other cheek, and he calls us to go the second mile, and he calls us to love and to pray for our enemies, not hate them, not scream at them. I like what E. Stanley Jones wrote about this. It is this audacious offenses of love. One man tries to break your head. As a Christian, you want to break his heart. You wrest the offensive from him. You choose your own battleground, your own weapons. Jesus, therefore, calls men to a new warfare on a new plane with new weapons. It is the moral equivalent of war. He calls men to the overcoming of evil, of hate, and of the world. Overcoming evil with good, hate by love, and the world by a cross. So let's sum it all up. I can give you this, just this one symbol that sums up everything. No one would have ever dreamt that the cross, the sign of defeat, and weakness would have ever become the symbol of a religion. I mean, Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 1. To to the Roman people, this was absolutely foolish. The symbol of execution, to the Jewish people, it was absolute weakness. You don't have a Savior that dies on a cross. But listen to me, friends. It's the cross that symbolizes everything we're talking about today. It's the cross that makes Christianity so different. And don't mistake it. The cross is still offensive. 
There's a preacher in Australia named John Deason who was preaching a sermon on the wounds of God, on the weakness of God. And afterwards, there was a time for people to, to comment. And during the question time, a Muslim man rose to explain, quote, how preposterous was the claim that the creator of the universe should be subjected to the force of his own creation. That the creator of the universe would eat, sleep, and go to the toilet, let alone down a cross. Dixon said his, his remarks were intelligent and they were civil. The man went on to argue it's illogical that God, the cause of all causes, should have pain inflicted on him by any lesser beings. The minister felt he had no knockdown argument, no witty comeback. So finally, this is all he did. He simply thanked the man for making the unique claim of Christianity so clear. What the Muslim denounces as blasphemy, the Christian holds precious. God has wounds. So this morning, we're going to ask you to go to table spread across the room to take the Lord's Supper. As you go to the table, the thought I want you to remember is the wounds of God, the weakness of God, this, this weapon of grace and forgiveness and love and service, these weapons that appear to a world to be so weak, they are the weapons that have won you and me. Why are we here today? Because we can't get over the fact that Jesus died on a cross. But here you've got to take the thought further. The cross is not simply the symbol of your salvation. The cross must be the symbol of your lifestyle. The cross is not just a sweet thing. The Lord's Supper is not just a sweet thing for you to go and remember, man, Jesus did this for me. Now I can be saved and go live my selfish American life. It's a symbol of not only your salvation, but your way of life. So as you go to the table today, celebrate the wounds and the weakness of God and determine that you're going to go to him not just so you can check off the salvation box, but so you can become like him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are a God that is so completely unique that people are offended. They think it's blasphemous that, that your son would become one of us, would, would walk this earth as a man, would, would wash feet and then would die in the greatest symbol before Jesus of defeat. And yet today, as we go to the tables today, we celebrate this as the greatest symbol of victory. But Lord, this morning I ask for me and I ask for each person here to connect the dots that it's not just about us getting saved from our sin, it's us being changed from the inside out. It's about us learning, yes, we are in a war and we need to be revolutionaries, but the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. They're not weak, they're strong. And so as we imbibe of the body and blood of Jesus, may we take upon ourselves not just his salvation, but his character. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.